what a delight it is to be here today. And as I, the moment I walked into the church, I felt at home. And uh, I feel that this is a bit of a time to see some old friends, people that uh, I have known over the years, but also it's a time to make new friends. And uh, some of the conversations that I've had even before service have been uh, enlightening and inspirational. So thank you so very much. And thank you, Tyler. I don't know where you went, but thank you for you and the team for leading us this morning. And um, I, I didn't hand you a set of sermon notes before you planned the service, but uh, so much of what you led this morning leads into uh, what I want to talk about. Uh, do you ever wonder what people see when they look at you? I, um, the older I get, the more I'm convinced that they are seeing an older man. Uh, some of you, uh, it's a little different story. You're young yet. And, uh, but but um, one of the things that I do just to annoy my children is when we're in a mall and maybe a few of the party are off shopping and uh, I would rather sit it out, I will find maybe a Tim Hortons uh, canteen in, in the mall, and I'll pick up a, a coffee, and then I'll sit next to one of my children, and I'll start making up stories about the people that are walking by. And of course, the sillier the story, the more they shake their head and go, oh, Dad, would you just stop it? Um, but there's that, that sense that we do make up stories about the people that we meet for the first time. The question that I want to begin with this morning is, who does God see when he looks at us? Who does God see when he looks at us? There's an old hymn. Some of you will remember this hymn, and it begins with the words, Just as I am. These are words that uh, accurately convey or describe the human condition. And the inference seems to be that when we approach God, we come from kind of a less than ideal stance, a depraved position, as it were. And, there, and there's truth to that. There is truth to that. But furthermore, if we were to ask the question, answer the question, what do we offer to God in terms for being redeemed, We'd have to answer, we'd have to be honest, and we'd have to say, well, really nothing. Nothing except our will. And it's as we offer our will to him and our desire to him, we become reconciled to him. And we find ourselves in right relationship with him. Metaphorically, we slide out of the driver's seat, and Jesus takes over the wheel of our car. Uh, to use an old song some of you would remember. In connection with putting our faith in God, one person has said that the two most important questions that we comp uh, contemplate when it comes to our faith are these two questions. Who am I? And who is God? And these questions sum it all up. Uh, if we understand who we are and uh, at many times, that, that uh, question has been answered a number of ways over the course of time. Some people say that we're king's kids. Uh, others refer to an old hymn that says, For such a worm as I, an author who was uh, describing our depraved question, answering the question, who am I? Uh, but those questions answered, who do we think 
we are in God's eyes becomes important to us. And as we may discover this morning, we may be making some erroneous assumptions about the way that God views us. But then there's that other question that I mentioned a moment ago. Who is God? It's actually the more important question. Some answers to that question have lacked reverence. Some people refer to God as the man upstairs, a person that looks like George Burns or Morgan Freeman. Some of us have made God unapproachable, the most holy one. Uh, maybe we think of an older man with white hair and a flowing beard who doesn't know how to smile. And, and we, we, again, it's not a biblical view of who God is. Some of these pictures may have small elements of truth, but if they are emphasized to the exclusion of other biblical descriptions, they simply are not helpful. Perhaps we fail to see God through the lens of grace. If for a moment we could travel to a dusty mid-eastern road back in time and see this uh, wee little man, as an old Sunday school chorus said, um, and ask ourselves, how did Zacchaeus see the Son of God? Or what about Jesus standing by a well, meeting for the first time an immoral woman, and he gives her living water? How did, how did she see God? Or the woman caught in adultery, and she thinks that she is going to be judged for her actions. And Jesus turns to her and says, go, go, go and sin no more. The list goes on and on. With Jesus, the sinless son of God, he does not accept the shortcomings and the sins of these people, but rather he takes a step in establishing a relationship with them that ultimately will lead to redemption. So let me ask you this. Why do we think that it's so different for us? Somehow we think about the things in our lives that work against a relationship with God or an intimate uh, relationship with him. And usually those things are wrapped up in wrong thinking in terms of the two questions that we're contemplating this morning. Who are we and who is God? There are so many things that should characterize the way that we approach God. And I'd like to suggest just two. Two things that shape our thinking with regard to these questions. And the first thing I'd like to propose to you is the aspect of transparency. Transparency is being willing to let others see, see who we really are and what is going on in our heart and life. For some reason, we tend to suppress our weaknesses. It's like we think, you know, if we hide these things, then, and if we make sure that God doesn't see them, they'll just go away. Um, we, we say things like, you know, I may have issues, but think about the person that works at the desk next to me. They, they really have issues. Assuming that if we don't draw God's attention to our shortcomings, perhaps he will ignore them. One of my friends suggested in a moment when we were talking about uh, law enforcement, and he said, you know, if you, if you pass a police car that's conducting a radar trap, just don't look at the policeman 
Because if you don't look at the policemen, they're less likely to come after you. I didn't try that on the way here this morning, even though I went through a radar trap. And, I, and I'm not here today to ask you to, um, you know, examine the validity of that suspicious statement. But when it came to Jesus, if you think about it, he spent the most of his time with those who appeared and in reality were vulnerable. You think of Nicodemus. You think of the Samaritan woman. You think of Peter, who actually, after three years spending time with Jesus, denied him. Jesus knew them inside and out. He knew their weaknesses. And by a means of grace, he established a relationship with them. They grew in closeness, and he made a difference in their lives. For those who lived in denial, the religious of the day, and they presented themselves as spiritual authorities through their adherence to laws and legalism, Jesus reserved his harshest words. David, in the Old Testament, had a perfect antidote to this. He cried out, search me, search me, O God, to see if there is some offensive way in me. Who am I? When, when we really boil it down, we, we have to admit that we are people who we don't even know our own selfishness. We don't know our own pride or our deceit or our lack of compassion. And then we rely on getting out of the spotlight and allowing the spotlight to shine on the areas that are in need of God's grace. That's what transparency is. And when God begins to point out those things and we are taken aback by how human and carnal we are, it becomes a tangible sign of our progress as he begins to deal with those things. The best antidote for guilt is confession. That's when God's grace is fully enacted. One famous pastor used to begin every sermon in his church with these words. God, if these people knew about me, what you know about me, they wouldn't listen to a word I said. That be, would be true for any one of us that stand behind a pulpit or stand up in front of a junior high class or a little kid's class. You know, if they knew what there was to know about us, they wouldn't listen to us. Uh, you may remember that Jesus talked about how we ought to sequester ourselves in a, in a private room for prayer. Uh, it may not necessarily mean a room in our house, uh, but it's more, when he was saying that, it was more about what took place or what should take place in that room. Jesus recommended open heart surgery where we would open up our chest cavity and we would allow him to do surgery on the areas of our life that needed to be changed. For some of us, that's in the car on the way to work or on the go train or at the kitchen table early in the morning or even when we are engaged in activities where we don't have to mentally engage. And like the psalmist, in those times we say, search me, O God. Know, know my heart today. See, see if there is a wicked way in me that needs to be exposed to your grace. The second attitudinal characteristic that helps us understand who we are in relationship to God is ensuring that we are in a position of trust. 
Tyler, I thought you were going to steal my sermon. Because you spoke. You spoke to that very point. That we put our trust in God. Corey Ten Boom, some of you will recognize that name. She said, never be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God. She was a person who uh, sheltered Jewish people from the Nazis in the Second World War, and she went to the concentration camp for her efforts. The illustrations of trust are all around us. My nephew and his new bride have a dog named Mason. Yes, like the jar. Um, They are fuzzy on how Mason got his name. We have theories, but those theories border on silliness. If you were to meet Mason, he would not come near you for days, Uh, maybe weeks, maybe even months. And uh, we think that perhaps he suffered abuse before Matt and Amanda acquired him. And so his level of trust of any human being is very, very low. Well, one summer, not so long ago, Mason was in the car as we drove to our cottage in Newfoundland, 25 hours in the car. I was covered in dog hair by the end of it, uh, but we were pretty good, at, pretty good friends by the end of that ride. And as recently as uh, Mason moved to Peterborough with uh, my nephew and his bride, I've actually had to rebuild that trust. Uh, nothing to do with me, everything to do with Mason. Trust is hard to build, and it's easy to destroy. Sometimes trust dissipates even because we just simply don't keep it current. A number of years ago, I found myself in a very difficult situation, and I began to whine with, to my wife. And finally, she began, became so tired of my whining, every time I would whine, she would cut me off with these words, Owen. Do you trust God? And that would always shut me up because obviously I had to answer the question, yes. And my response would be, well, of course. But it soon became obvious to Donna that I really didn't trust God for my future, as evidenced by my determination to fix it for myself. Now, before you judge me, think about this. That actually is our natural progression through life. From the early days of our lives, our parents wanted us to be dependent, to not have to trust in other people. Uh, There was potty training. I've just had a grandson that went through that. The tying of shoelaces. We were constantly being ushered toward independence. We buy self-help books. When it comes to our spiritual lives, we have to retrain ourselves to be dependent on God. We sang about that this morning. It goes, actually, it goes against the grain of what we have been taught. But then we think more deeply about the dependence issue, and we realize that there are many things in life on which we are dependent. Ontario Hydro, the auto mechanic that fixes our car the farmers that grow our food. So once we realize that, yes, we grow toward independence, but yet there is also this this dimension of our lives where we continue to be dependent, and one of those major areas is our spirituality, our relationship with God. Brings me back to our opening thought. Who am I? 
We are a person, we are people who have inherited a fallen nature. We are people who are called to be dependent on God. Because Jesus said, apart from me, you do nothing. This is where God's values are inverted. As we are transformed into his likeness, we become more dependent on him. And praying, our prayer closet, that is our sign. That's our activity where we are declaring that we are dependent on him. Just like we sang in worship this morning. One author puts it this way. In the presence of the great physician, my most appropriate contribution may be my wounds. Those weaknesses that we have, we submit them over to God. There's an attitude that works along with this process of recognizing our dependence on him. And that's the quality, the characteristic of humility. Think of the picture of the Pharisee who said, and this is in contrast, who said, you know, as he was praying, you know, I, I'm so thankful that I'm not like. And then he made his list of people that he was not like. This, this lack of humility. It, it was like, I'm not as bad as that person that's next door. Just compare me to them. Don't hold me accountable for my actions. Just compare me. As opposed to the one who cries out, Oh God, just be merciful to me. I'm nothing more, nothing less than a sinner saved by grace. That's not false humility. One author has said, This is an ongoing choice for us to credit God credit God, and not ourselves for those things that are granted to us by God. It, it really goes against the culture in which we live. You think about a Facebook culture where we are quick to post what I call my life is better than your life posts. Really. And I, I think that that, uh, that that just is something that we have to keep in our minds. And I would assume as we think about these principles that we've just talked about, about transparency and dependency. I would assume that you would agree that those, those principles are found in God's word. In a passage that was read earlier in the service, one of David's poems found in Psalm 103, we find that there are answers to that question, who is God? Now, let's keep in mind who David was. First of all, David was a man who was tapped on the shoulder for great things. He, he, God anointed him to be the king over Israel. But his behavior became suspect. And some of you, many of you will know this. He had an affair. As a result of that affair, he committed murder. Um, in another one of his poems, he wrote, My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You, God, will not despise. See, here's what I think was happening. I think David was getting older. He probably was still dealing with a sense of shame. Uh, he probably had regret. He probably was reflecting on, maybe in a different form, but reflecting on the questions that we were talking about this morning. Who am I? Who is God? And he was in the process of discovering and admitting his frailty. After killing a giant, in his younger days, after defeating enemy after enemy, after ruling a nation, he was confronted with his mortality and his weaknesses. And in this response, 
he was, he was contemplating who he was and who God was in his life. And he discovers, as he wrote, so that we could have the benefit, he wrote, the Lord is compassionate. He realized God was compassionate, gracious, and slow to anger. God abounds in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquity. That's a pretty impressive list. And you stop and think about it, that that is the God that we serve. That's amazing. That's overwhelming. It's an impressive list. And David is going back to the foundational elements of God's character. And even in the Old Testament, God is a God of grace, a God of love, and a God of forgiveness. So, but remember, again, the other side. Remember who God is dealing with here. He's dealing with someone who's a sinner just like us. That a person, David, whose mistakes were many and, and, and public, you know, people were watching entertainment tonight and watching Instagram and they were seeing David's sins just unfold before them. But he also, David also knew that God's mercy pardoned sin. That God's grace bestowed favor. These are things that are God's specialties. But then again, what about the question, who are we? Simply stated, we are the objects of God's love. We're the objects of his grace, his forgiveness. Allow me to suggest that while the who are we question is relevant, ultimately, ultimately the important question is who is God? We know that nothing we can do, nothing uh, that we can be, can deserve any of the blessings to which David pointed out. We're simply people, as one author has described, people who receive a free gift and understand that open hands are the only requirement. One of the puzzling parts of this passage is, it says this, He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. I remember when I first read this and contemplated this, I thought it meant, you know, you know, God loves and he's compassionate, and, but he gets to the point where it's like if we don't, you know, shape up, he has it up to here and he just walks away and he just says, okay, I've had enough. That's actually, it actually means quite the opposite. Supposing um, you invited a number of your friends to lunch today, and, uh, but somehow, some reason, you forgot to email your best friend. And um, you wondered why he or she didn't respond to your email. And uh, a few days later, you were confronted. And when it was all sorted out, you realized that you had sent the invitation to an email address from a place of employment where they had formerly worked. Now, let me ask you this. Will your best friend continue to accuse? Will they harbor anger? No. The perceived slight's been cleared up. It's in the past. And not wishing to be disrespectful of God, but we, inherent in his character, is the ability to forgive and to refuse to accuse. God is not a God who accuses us. 
and he does not engage in long-term anger. The God that we serve desires relationship with us and the one that grows in intimacy. David continues, he says, he does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. I think sometimes in the back of our mind, we have this idea that God is, and I don't mean to be disrespectful, please, please bear with me. I think it's like we think we have a whack-a-mole God. It's like if we pop up our sinful heads, he will hit us. He will push us down. A number of years ago, I was uh, interim pastor in a church uh, to the west of us here. And I would go to the hospital. And they had special parking for, for pastors. They gave us tokens. And in, you, put the token, or you, you went into the parking lot. And then on the way out, you put your token in the machine. And of course, and you, you'd all, all done this. The, the arm goes up and you drive out. But I'm telling you, that, that arm, that barrier, oh, it, it was totally unpredictable. Sometimes it would be up, and sometimes it would be down. When it was up, you were always afraid if you drove through it, you'd get hit. Or if it was down, you'd wonder if it would go up, and you'd wonder if your token would work. It, it, like, I mean, it was quite an adventure just to go hospital visitation, you know. And um, I, I think sometimes that's our view of God. We think he's totally unpredictable. We think he's judgmental, this one who has great power, who holds everything against us. And even though he might forgive us, he reserves the right to treat us as if uh, uh, what our sins uh, deserve. David, of all people, at the end of his life, testifies that God's not like that. God does not give us what we deserve. God does not make us pay for our sins. There may be some self-inflicted results, but they are on us. And so when we approach God, he doesn't hold a, an iPad in front of us and, and, and show every clip of every one of our sins. They're wiped out with grace and forgiveness. He accepts us. And, and not, not for a moment, and I, I do need to say this, not for a moment would I suggest that we, in the back of our mind, have permission to continue to sin. Because as Paul would say, that, we, that if, if we take that attitude, then really what we're doing is we're taking advantage of God's abounding grace. But as the Holy Spirit dwells in us, we seek to be transformed into his likeness. And that journey that we are on, that spiritual journey that we are on, he helps us deal with our stuff. Here's something to think about. Jesus declared that we should forgive our brothers and our sisters uh, 70 times 7. Most, most people who study that passage think that that's indicative of an infinite number. Not, not just, you know, uh, the, the result of 70 times 7, 409. Not, not that, but rather infinite. And do you think that God, who specializes in grace and mercy, is going to forgive us a limited number of times, maybe seven, maybe 14? Of course not. The forgiving God that we approach, he forgives us forever for all of our sins. So what's, what, in essence, is the purpose of what we've been talking about today? We've gone about things a little bit backward. Usually we've discussed those things about God, those characteristics of God, uh, up front, and then we talk about our response. 
But uh, it would be my hope and prayer that what we've discussed this morning allows us to contemplate a fresh approach at how God looks at us and how we discover his characteristics, his compassion, his love, the fact that he's slow to anger, that he forgives us, that he appreciates uh, that our willingness to be forgiven. And so we become transparent. We become transparent in confession. We become transparent in our humility. And we put our trust in him. We consciously tell him and convey to him that we bow to his will and that we will be obedient to him. That's, that's our response. And as a result, through that process, I am convinced that he takes care of our future. That he looks at us and he understands where we are at in our relationship with him in the present. And he honors us by guiding us and leading us into the future. It's my prayer that when we get to David's ripe old age, we too, every single one of us in this room, would look back and we would be able to say, now and in the future, the Lord is compassionate. The Lord is gracious. The Lord is slow to anger. The Lord abounds in love. Thanks be to God. Amen? Let's, let's pray together. Lord, we bow in your presence. And we're so thankful that your word is so clear on who you are. And we pause today, O oh God, and we understand that on our part there is to be a response. And as a congregation, as a church family, we commit in our hearts to love you and to serve you and to be obedient to you. Thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you for your compassion. And thank you for your love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.